Network. Connected. MIDI session. Running. MIDI show control. Confirmed. DMX interface. Connected. Light control. Confirmed. Ethernet. Active. Audio interface. Active and engaged. Arduino unit. In range. Bluetooth remote pair. Connected. OSC IP. Active. We're ready. Start the queue. It's the show about control. Featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, and Mark Neiser. It's the queue. Welcome, sheeple. So we have... Josh Langwin. Hello. And Alex Sparks. Hello. Welcome to the queue, and we're so glad you made it. We have a special guest, Sam Kuznets, is joining us. He's a sound and projection designer, composer, and all-around theatrical problem solver. His company, Team Sound, has just released GoBox, a wired remote built specifically for QLab and other MIDI-triggered programs. He is also the heart of the QLab support team, so when you're emailing them, he's probably one of the guys you're going to be hearing from. Please welcome Sam Kuznets. Thanks so much for having me on. We are big fans of QLab, obviously. We recently saw you've come out with GoBox. Is that correct? It's a, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a side project of mine. Um, Andy Lang, my co-conspirator at Figure 53 and Man About Town in the theater world in New York, he ran Duck's Echo Audio, which produced very fine... QLab remotes. And when he started working full time for Figure 53 and got married and has got sort of all kinds of other things going on in his life, so he doesn't really have time to keep up that side business. So I felt like there was a an opening that needed to be filled. So that's what I did, or what I'm trying to do. Um, I aspire to produce hardware that is as well-made as Andy's. Now, Sam, I have one of Andy's remotes that I use, and it's really great. And I was wondering, what's different? Did you change anything? Uh, did you make any different development choices with your product? Yeah, there are a couple of essential qualities of mine that I think represent what I wanted to bring to the table. The first thing is that the enclosures are made of aluminum. They're meant to be sort of smack aroundable. People want to take things on the road and toss them in the road box, toss them in the drawer in a rack, and not really worry about whether it's going to crack or split or whatever. So the GoBox 4 is made of die-cast aluminum. They're actually made out of guitar pedal shells. That's cool. It felt kind of fun. And as a sort of freebie, the company that manufactures those, the only powder coating colors that they had on offer were all sort of like cool colors that someone who's buying a guitar pedal might want. So... I picked this sort of sparkly blue, which, as it turns out, is really gorgeous. I'm pleased with that, and people seem to like it, so that's exciting. And then the GoBox 6 is made of uh, extruded aluminum, like you might see an industrial computer casing made out of. That comes in a little bit more austere, uh, proper, low-gloss black. Is it just the one USB out on the back, no power needed? They're powered over USB. They use bus power. The GoBox 4 has a single USB connector to connect to a single computer, and the GoBox 6 has two USB connectors to connect uh, a redundant setup. USB supplies the power and carries MIDI information from the GoBox back to the Mac. Another one of my little additions there, Neutrik locking USB connectors. Nice. Uh, so, so I was going to ask so about if you that. Have a, yeah, so if you have a USB cable with a Neutrik shell, it'll lock in place and not pull out. And if you don't, uh, you know, a regular old USB cable will fit in, no problem. Hmm. And do, to undo that, you push down on it and it'll release? Or you just have to buy another remote? <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Exactly. Okay, that's a great marketing scam. The the shell looks like an XLR connector, but the way that it releases is apparently is is very slightly different than on an XLR. It's sort of um, a little bit more like a NL connector where you sort of pull the collar of the connector mm-hmm. and then the cable disengages. Well, the duality of the GoBox 6 is awesome to have a something you can actually use in two systems simultaneously. I always wrestle with this wired remote concept. I'm all about wireless because I'm the guy on stage during the show. And so the idea of something hardwired right. is impossible for me to even think about using. What's the obsession with the hardwiring? Is it is it they're so afraid that wireless is unreliable somehow? When's the last time you had a Wi-Fi connection drop out? I, I hate to even say it out loud because it'll jinx me. Of any kind. Your laptop, your... Uh, your phone for me the answer is today Hmm. Um, and when's the last time I had a USB connection fail on me and the answer is I really don't know I Mm -hmm. can't remember Mm -hmm. and that's where it comes from I understand your use case you're a performer you're out on stage if you have a wire it's completely debilitating Mm -hmm. I have a great deal of respect for your sort of one man band (laughs) approach I really do. I, I I don't want anything I'm saying to sound like I'm looking down on I am that. editing out the However, word one-man band. I can make that pretty clear right now. Is that not the way that you operate as a performer? Absolutely am I, true. Am I, I, I think that's 100% accurate, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I've never seen your show, so I, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I get the sense that it's sort of uh, designed, directed, produced, delivered. Yeah. It's it's um, absolutely accurate. That's why I'm not including it. I think that's cool. I'm that's, I'm, Thank you. I'm, really it, I'm joking. Make, I'm joking. Make it sound like I don't like that. No, okay, I'm joking. Great. It's just funny, uh, the idea of I feel like uh, you know the guy from Mary Poppins on the side of the road there with his uh, drum. Yeah, and, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, <laughs> Bert. So, Bert is the character, right? Right. What I think is that your use case, your scenario, is the minority, is the rarity. Most of the time, you have someone operating QLab who is not on stage. And when that is true, there's no reason not to use a wire. And if there's no reason not to use a wire, you always should, Hmm. is my attitude. Yeah. For a good time in Midtown, take a spectrum analyzer connected to a radio receiver and just sort of sweep around. And you'll notice that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 billion radios in Midtown. Each Broadway show has their full complement of wireless mics. People have wireless intercom. Every taxi company has wireless radio dispatch. The police have a number of channels, the fire department, the paramedics. There's just a huge amount of radio congestion in New York. The sort of rule of thumb for us here is anything that doesn't have to be wireless, just make it wired and take one thing off of your list of headaches. To have a remote like this, is this a way of preventing some guy from leaning on the keyboard and triggering all kinds of mayhem to limit their input to it or to have them be in a different position away from the computer? There are a number of advantages I think that a remote gives you. You've listed two of them right there, leaning against the keyboard. Computer keyboards are designed with a bunch of different things in mind. Let's be generous and say that most computer keyboards are designed with the idea that you're going to sit down and type and you want to be comfortable typing. But of course, someone running QLab is not typing and they've got a different posture and they've got different priorities. If you put your finger on the corner of your space bar over to one side, you can press it pretty far down without actually making the spacebar trigger a space character you have to hit it in the right spot and the cheaper your keyboard the more that is a problem 
on Apple laptops, there's actually a hardware sleep built into the keyboard. So after a period of inactivity, the keyboard will shut off to save power, and the first key press that it receives after that period of inactivity will wake the keyboard up, but not get passed on to the wow. system. It's horrifying, right? Even if you put the system to sleep, uh, no sleep and no, uh, you know, no screen? It's not in software at all. It has nothing to do with any of the other sleep functions, nothing to do with the OS. It's hardwired into the keyboard controller, and it can't wow. be changed. And here's the really fun part. The duration, not only is it unknown, except if someone sat down and measured it, I haven't, I haven't been able to, it's different for every model of MacBook. Mm. So you can't even plan around it and say, well, I know two minutes is the timeout, so I'll just make sure that I hit it every two minutes. You know, you can't, you don't have that predictability. It's immensely frustrating. And people with laptops, I recommend if they don't have a remote, I tell them to use the mouse. If not, I tell them to go to Staples and get a stupid, cheap USB keyboard, which at least won't fall asleep on them. Hmm. Oh, the external um, one won't do that. Exactly, because oh. it's the controller chip for the built-in keyboard that does this sleeping. So that's all one reason. Another reason is when you are in tech rehearsal, the, uh, what I call the tech table problem. In an environment where your operator is not the same person as your designer, a common way to set up QLab for instance, the standard way to do it off-Broadway is that the QLab computer is in the booth and the sound operator is at the QLab computer. And then there's a KVM extender that puts the mouse and keyboard and monitor down at the tech table for the sound designer and the assistant sound designer. So the operator can see the screen and has a keyboard and mouse in front of them. And then down at the tech table, they have an exact mirror of all of that. And so as you're working your way through the show... The stage manager is calling cues and the sound operator is responding by taking those cues. But let's say that during a period in between cues, the sound designer wants to edit a cue other than the one that's standing by. Well, QLab has the ability to disconnect the playback position from the selected position. And the purpose of that is to enable this behavior so that the sound operator can be standing by in cue six, but the sound designer can go click Q12 and make adjustments to yeah. it. When that disconnect is in place, you also need a different control. You need a button for the operator to be able to press go that isn't the space bar. Uh -huh. Because let's say for a moment that the sound designer is in the middle of editing a note. Then when the sound operator presses the space bar, it'll just add a space in the notes field rather than triggering the go button. That's why we want to have an, ex uh, an external box. That's a great reason. There's, I, I can add a couple other reasons, too, that I found wired remotes super useful. One of them is uh, the scenario where you have one op for both lighting and sound, and there's no time to do to uh, run the lightboard off MIDI or do any kind of show control thing. So you've got a QLab laptop, mm -hmm. and you've got your lightboard. And if you can give them this little trigger box that can sit on top of the lightboard, and they don't need to lean way over to the other, to the other side of the booth for sound, they really like that. Another thing that I like is just being able to, you know, stand up in the booth and just, just have a thing that you can hold in your hand. It feels a lot more solid and reliable than sort of crouching over a keyboard. So, yeah, For me, just having the extra, like, the travel and the button and the, like, the tactile feedback of it to confirm in your brain that you did, in fact, push that button is really mm -hmm. useful which you don't necessarily get from all keyboards. Especially now that the keyboards are getting thinner and thinner. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't laid hands on the new MacBook, um, the super thin one, but 
I understand that the key travel on the keyboard in that new MacBook is at at half or maybe even less than half of the key travel in a in a, all the other laptops. So I, I think it's possible people are going to be very skeptical of whether or not they actually press the mm. button. Well, the way I've gotten around this is I actually, for my remote, I actually use a MacBook Pro strapped to my belt. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I just leave that open, and no one's even noticed it. It's It's been pretty foolproof. You know, here I am trying to talk myself out of a wired remote, but two days ago I was doing a corporate event in Seattle, and I'm in the audience. I come in from the audience, and I have to trigger a light-up command to turn on the lights for the guy that's introducing me. I'm just in a big ballroom. And I hit my button with the supreme confidence and negative Ghost Rider. So I got to jog up along the side of the corporate thing and repair my Bluetooth remote to the computer. I had to get within 20 feet of it and I could see it on the screen that it had repaired. And then I could hit the button to get it to go. But yeah, so, you know, I I got it. I failed. So when I asked you that question about when the last time was (laughs) that you lost a connection. Yeah, I was just. It was a. It was at least then, right? Yeah, it's, but that's over 48 hours ago. And because of some of the short-term memory loss problems <laughs> I have, um, you know, I don't remember that far back. Yeah, so. I, I can also just say the last show I did, I was uh, designing sound and video. The stage manager was my op, and we were just sitting next to each other at the tech table, still being able to give the stage manager a remote so that he can hit the cues and I can edit other cues was just, you know, we, the, it wouldn't have been possible to do it if we couldn't do that. It's a luxury, certainly, but once you have it, it's very difficult to imagine working as efficiently or as productively without it. Do the buttons light up? They don't. I made the choice to have uh, no illumination whatsoever so that it could go at a front-of-house position and not contribute to light bleed. Yeah, I would um, agree with that. I feel like if I'm going to scold lighting designers for the horrendous ear-splitting, <laughs> gut-wrenching, soul-sucking sounds that all their moving lights right. make, then I should at least reciprocate by making a device that doesn't light I agree. Up. I agree. That's why I use Smart Max, because there's no fan. Uh, you know, when I was at the uh, Broadway Master Classes, all the sound designers were saying they were going to scheme to make speakers that leak light all over the place. <laughs> I thought was a great idea. <laughs> well, first of all, I've, I've been lucky to work with some lighting designers who really get it and are just as bothered by the noise as I am. But also some manufacturers are starting to get it, and some of the newer fixtures, particularly the LED fixtures, are either passively cooled or cooled with some much better designed fans than the others. I mean, there are still plenty of jet engines out there, but it's not as bad as it could be, and it's not getting dramatically worse right now, and I'm, I'm happy for that. Um, so no, nothing lights up. There has been a request for just a little a little confidence lamp to let the operator know that the thing is plugged in and working. And I think I might add that to a, a future revision. That is a good idea. I do like the six yeah. version. It's, it's got the nice finger spread right there and it looks pretty sweet. Well, I'll have to cut it apart and convert it to a foot switch, <laughs> but that shouldn't, that should be fine. Originally when I first started performing <laughs> before there was quote wireless anything, I had five guitar amp uh, switches on the floor in front of me fast forward pause sure. and i ran a dat player with that had a hardwired remote that i took apart and resoldered using a conductive epoxy to expand those connectors so i had my whole full play pause fast forward dead center um so when i was doing a show like a routine for example i'm gonna throw a bowling ball off my foot i'd have to stand with one foot next to the remotes 
the bowling ball in my right foot, propane tank in my right hand, electric carving knife in my left hand. And then when it was time to trigger it, I had to rock back and then rotate my foot 90 degrees, push play, rock back again, and throw the bowling ball off my foot. No one ever noticed it or ever appreciated my efforts. But uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was my original hardwired remote, which worked great. And this, as we all know, is an exceedingly common use case. <laughs> so I think that yeah. uh, all products in the future should target this act. Yes, yes. Now I just hit my Absolutely. I just hit my belt. I should add a, a propane torch option to uh, <laughs> to my web store. Yeah, I can. I can. Yeah. I'll be glad to help on the design for it. Ours lights up too, <laughs> so you know. I know I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, well, I think honestly, a propane torch that doesn't light up that that really should. That's a cause for concern. Well, you should see my LED version. I, because a lot of corporate oh events I get to, I can't do fire. And so I've built an LED version that looks absolutely convincing to the point where I've had a fire marshal come and stop the show. It's thinking I was trying to bypass his authority at one point, which is a great compliment. Yeah, that is a great compliment. Yeah. We'll, we'll need to have the instructions for that on a future episode. So you are an official uh, member of Figure 53. Yes, I'm an action figure. That's what that's what they call us. Well, it's very, very cool. We are so blown away by QLab. And I mean, the, the reason we started this thing is we're basically just a bunch of cheerleaders who have found this magical software that's taken us into this, into the w- wonderful world of creativity to the point where we even have a, I have an online game that we use sometimes on this show. Uh, designed in, I've heard about the game. Yeah. Designed in QLab. I, I I don't know if you guys ever anticipated all the uses that that your software would become. That's something that Chris frequently says. Is that the thing that helped him know that QLab was working was good? Is that people were doing things with it that he did not imagine might be done. Right. Andy and I teach what we call the Q class, which is our educational component of our program. I did a little demonstration about how to use. QLab to replicate cell animation, classic cell animation technique, by using uh, still images and fade cues to move them around in a manner similar to cell animation. And after we came out of the first class where he saw me do that, he said, how far do you think you could take that? And the end result was I built a semi-functional version of Super Mario Brothers (laughs) that runs entirely in QLab and uses no video, all still images and a little MIDI mapped game controller. And Chris saw that and said, yeah, I never, I never really <laughs> could possibly have imagined you were going to do something like that. So all right, it's, it, QLab must be working. Yes, he is right. Uh, that's why I want to get together sometime and have us all bring our projects in a giant room together and showcase yeah, all this. Convention. Yeah, all this creativity. It, it is so unexpected. I never ever thought it would come to this level that it has now. And that's, that is the great gift he's given us. Absolutely. You have any interesting support stories? <laughs> I mean, like to me, it's interesting when folks write in for whom English is not their first language because it makes it a little bit more exciting <laughs> to try to figure out what it is they're talking about. Um, lang- language barrier is challenging enough when you're talking about things that aren't technical. Yeah. I don't, I and mean, that doesn't make for a good story. It just makes for sort of good work, you know, getting into it. Well, we get requests from folks who are doing some interesting things. A gentleman was uh, using QLab to support video playback for a tour of a screening of The Godfather with an orchestra. And so they screened the film 
with the audio tracks intact except for the scoring. <laughs> and then the scoring is all performed live by an orchestra. And he was having some playback stability problems. Talking him through that was sort of exhilarating because I'm a big fan of The Godfather. And he said, yeah, we're at the Sydney Opera House now. <laughs> and so I, you know, my jaw went a little slack. And I was glad that I was talking on email where he couldn't see that. <laughs> well, we didn't have much interaction with them, but we do know that QLab was used as part of the opening ceremonies for the London Olympics. And that was pretty exciting to realize, all right, I'd someone imagine, hit go yeah. on QLab and a billion people heard it. Wow. And we all saw it at the, uh, the Apple event, right? What? Yeah. That's right. That's that, right. That there was a, a quick shot of QLab in the uh, Apple event. Last year, I got my first paycheck from Broadway last year. Woo. Congratulations. Thank you. A figure 53 doesn't do house calls, but someone said, listen, we've just loaded in Cripple of Anishman and we're really having trouble and we really need someone to come take a look. And... I said, by all means, I will stop by. And so I got to head on up to Broadway, knocked on the stage door, got let in, and got sort of treated like a guest. It was very um, it was very flattering and also humbling at the same time because, you know, the stage door leads you out onto the stage, and I had to cross the stage and climb up a ladder and da-da-da-da-da to get to the booth. The booth, I mean, the mix position was just up in a balcony. And sat there and solved their problem and shook hands and off I went. And that sort of was a very, it was a very amazing moment. I am at a spot in my design career where um, Broadway no longer feels like something mystical and distant, (laughs) but it's still not part of my daily life as a, as someone who works on it. Mm -hmm. I don't work on it. I work off Broadway. Uh, So I was right at that, at that spot where it, it felt special and it felt amazing and it felt big, but that to get in there and realize, you know, theater on Broadway is like theater everywhere else. It's just on Broadway. It's the same thing. It was two Mac minis in a rack and someone put the rack together and they had audio running out into a DM 1000. And from there to the same speakers that you would see in almost any other theater in the city, just, regular stuff and the stagehands there were regular stagehands and it was a nice experience to simultaneously feel as though it were special and as though it were just another show and it also felt very good to be able to sort of walk in as the hired gun definitively solve their timing problem and know that the show continued without any trouble after that what was the problem they were triggering some light cues via midi and some of their their programming approach was not getting it done. The sound designer is a self-described novice at sound design. Uh, if he heard me say this, he would not be offended. So okay. I, I really am not talking shit about him at all. He's, he's a, a composer and he wrote, I thought, gorgeous music for the show and did a wonderful job designing it. But he's not experienced when it comes to QLab and programming cues and dealing with all that stuff. Sound Associates was the shop that supplied the equipment, and they also supplied the QLab programming work. And it was a transfer of a show from England, so it was sort of an adaptation of an existing set of cues. And I think some of their sort of timing issues, it was just a matter of like adjusting pre-weights. And then there was another issue that uh, was they were using an outdated version of QLab, and we had improved the timing of MIDI cues under certain circumstances where MIDI cues were getting delayed. 
part of my help for them was simply installing a new version of QLab, hmm. which they didn't have the confidence to do, not knowing whether it would screw up any other thing. You know, you one of the golden rules is don't update during a run. But in this particular case, because I was closely involved with the process of testing that update, I knew exactly what had been changed and I knew what the implications were. And I, I was able to say with confidence, no, this update will only solve your MIDI problems. It will not trip up anything else. I noticed from your mini bio on the Figure 53 website that your friendship with QLab began in version one and you're happy he's never looked at a mini disc since. Mini disc is a horrible demon of a format yeah. that never should have been <laughs> and should be wiped from the earth like a scourge. I always had some swagger when these guys would show up with mini disc players and I was like, yeah, I do DAT. I mean, I had this, that little teeny, I don't know who made it anymore, DAT player. It's almost like a Walkman, but crushed mini disc as far as sound quality back in the day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was a pain in the neck, but it, it once you got it going, it sounded pristine by comparison to anything else that was out yeah. there. Minidisc, the sound quality was lame, but that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it, I don't know if you've ever experienced the dreaded TOC error. I never had a Minidisc um, player. I was all that. A Minidisc is, uh, functionally, it works a lot like a hard disk in that there is a small section of the disk, physically a small section, where they keep uh, a table of contents, TOC. And basically this section says, all right, starting at this spot is audio track one and starting at this spot is track two and da 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 And it sort of gives an overview of the material on the disc. There was a problem. Uh, if you interrupted the process of updating that table of contents by say, killing power to the mini disc player while it was updating the table of contents, it would corrupt the table of contents oh and that disc would be <gasps> useless forever. Wow. Wow. And that's a really painful thing to observe, you know, if you have a power outage or even just hit the eject button slightly too soon when you're ejecting the disc. That's it. You just you hose the disc and it's over. And that's a terrible, miserable thing. And I'm really glad to never have to deal with wow. it. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's what was sweet about my DAT player. It did have a hardwired remote so you could hit it would fast forward and find the marker. I skipped over DAT. I went from uh, analog tape to um, CDRs and yeah. then CDRs to mini discs briefly and then to QLab. I just took all the dats out of our booth. They were sitting in a shelf for seven, ten years and we finally got rid of them. Yeah, it's so sad. I have yeah. a drum machine behind me and a MIDI keyboard. I just, I'm going to have to throw them in the trash. I can't give them away. Who doesn't want a MIDI keyboard? Yeah, you but know, if it generates MIDI, I'll, I'll it's mail useful. it to you. You pay shipping, it's yours. Okay. Really? Deal. I'm so happy. <laughs> Get rid of this thing. See, podcasts bringing people together. <laughs> Sam, do you want to talk any about your composing work? I thought the uh, Southwestern Christmas songs were hilarious. <laughs> I did a show called uh, A Tuna Christmas, which is, I believe, a pretty popular show. It's a two-hand play. But it's, it's a gimmick. It's a good gimmick. The gimmick is that there's two actors playing several dozen characters each. The first play that was set in this little world in this style was called Tuna, Texas. The premise of the play is, welcome to our crazy little town. Let's introduce you to all these crazy people that live in our crazy little town. And then the play was such a success that a sequel was written. There's a small theater company in Portland which produced a production of that that was a real hit, and they do it almost every year now. And I was hired as the sound designer for that. And I decided that what I wanted to do for scene change music was... Uh, all Christmas carols recorded 
by a, as though recorded by a small country western band. I was raised in a very secular fashion, and I'm culturally Jewish. So my exposure to Christmas carols was limited, but I actually really like Christmas carols. I think they're fun music. And I had a good time applying a concept to a body of music that I could then work with. The idea wasn't just that I was going to do country western Christmas carols, but I was imagining a specific band, a fictional band, and they didn't appear on stage, they were never referred to, but the play starts and ends in a radio station. So I figured that this little tiny radio station in this little tiny town might occasionally feature work by local artists and local artists of a caliber that is in line with the sorts of folks that we meet would be like this little rinky-dink band that like played at some bar every Tuesday, you know, and they have the standing Tuesday 7 p.m. gig and they convince their friends to come, you know, and it's a little sad and a little lame, but maybe they actually are capable musicians and so I, I figured well there's a fiddler and there's a drummer there's a bassist there's a guy on a steel guitar and uh, maybe there's a banjo player and so I used that set of instruments to record uh, Silent Night and uh, White Christmas and Jingle Bells and Away in a Manger Oh Holy Night was my personal favorite because it, it picked up a it's a little snappy. And I, I just like, I sort of geeked out on this I- idea of this fictional band. And what resulted, what, what, what came out in the end was a, a really consistent score. It felt like a score for a play that had been through composed, even though I was not through composing. I was leaving the scenes alone. I was just doing scene change music, really. But it had a consistent feel. It had sort of, oh, yeah, th- you, could, you could pull any one song and immediately recognize it as being part of the set. And it ended up helping because the whole point of this show is to make it as cohesive as possible when there's two guys just, like, burning through costumes at top speed and running as fast as possible to make entrances. And, you know, they'd exit and then tear around and reenter from the other side of the stage. And you, what you wanted in that situation was glue to make it all feel like one big thing. And I think that's what the score ended up doing. Yeah, that sounds like a great concept. Do you have a formal uh, background in composing? When I was a small, small child, my mother sent me to piano lessons. And I had a piano teacher who lived in a basement apartment in Greenwich Village. Her name was Betsy Mullen. And she was uh, Southern. I don't remember exactly where she's from. But she's the only person who pronounces my first name with two syllables. (laughs) Sam, have you practiced today? (laughs) She was just so delightful and so wonderful. She did not approve of teaching sheet music reading early. She said we develop the ear first and we develop sort of a love of the instrument first. Uh, And But the problem with that approach was that, for, for her, was that somehow we never actually made it to that other stage with the sheet music. So I have a very well developed ear and I had for a while, reasonable piano technique, but my sight reading skills are extremely poor and I can't sit down and be uh, in front of a piece of sheet music and just play it the way that, you know, quote, the way that real piano players can. But I got, I developed a good ear and I did develop a love of the instrument and a love of music. And I really credit Betsy with that prioritizing, even though some of the time I feel sort of like a faker for not being able to really read and write sheet music. And then I learned Paul McCartney doesn't read or write sheet music. And I love his work, and I think he's a great songwriter, and I feel like if you can get to that level without 
your sheet music skills being up to snuff, then then maybe it's okay. So after Betsy, I I sort of just started learning whatever I could. My my brother was interested in the guitar, so I would play his guitar when he wasn't. And then uh, I was in in high school. I was asked to be in a play, and I was asked to play the cello for the play. So I got a hold of a cello, and someone gave me a cello lesson or two, and so I played the cello and. Um, my friend Doug Gillison wanted to get rid of his banjo and tried to sell it. And he sold it to Peter Hoffman out from under my, I, I almost had it. And Pete Hoffman bought it for five bucks off Doug Gillison. And then I watched Pete struggle with the banjo for the whole rest of the day. And at the end of the day, I was like, listen, I'll give you $5 and 50 cents for that thing. <laughs> and he said, sold. And he, he felt, felt good for making a profit. And I got a banjo out of it. <laughs> and uh, I just sort of tried to collect instruments. So I've, I've managed to work my way through most of the string instruments in terms of laying my hands on them and playing them. And that's been my approach. I don't have a formal background in composition. I just have a, an interest in learning instruments and what they do and how to do things with them. Um, I had a great chorus teacher in high school and a great music theory teacher in college. Well, and in high school as well, all of whom felt that um, being able to read sheet music and sing it was a fundamental skill that all humans should have. And so I can do that fairly well. And uh, theory classes were fun for me, although they were an enormous struggle because I don't read and write sheet music quickly. I could do it you know, at home. My homework went fine, just took a long time. But all through all these stages, I, just, I was very lucky to have teachers who really prioritized enjoying music and understanding what about it is enjoyable over sort of more textbook sort of this is what you do to compose and this is what you do to play and this is these are the techniques you must master and I just sort of managed to avoid those sorts of teachers and so what I feel like I ended up with was a very organic messy incomplete but nevertheless productive musical education and that's what I try to inspire in students when I teach um and I tell them, yeah, you got to go, got to go learn about sheet music from someone else. You got to learn how to be a, you know, concert level musician from someone else. But I can tell you about, you know, how to write a good tune that feels good because here's what I know about that. Do you know what I mean? Cool. Yeah. yeah it's fantastic. Yeah. Oh. So when you, uh, it's the same thing with design because my, I, I, no one, you know, no one at, uh, I went to Brown university and which is a great school and I had a phenomenal education, but no one there taught sound design. So, but that what they did do was say, well, we've got a show coming up and we need a sound designer and here are the keys to the booth and off you go. And so I had to learn to sound design. What is your role at figure 53? Every time I hit meet the team link, it reshuffles everybody. So have you been president and then vice president and secretary? It's <laughs> the point of the shuffling is because Chris really wants to emphasize that we, we are a company of equals, and that is certainly how the company is run. I mean, most of the time when Chris makes a broad sweeping decision, the reason is that the rest of us have all said, Chris, will you please make a broad sweeping decision and lay the law down? We would like you to do that. Hmm. And he begrudgingly sets aside a democratic process and makes a broad sweeping decision. Um, no, my official role there, I got to choose my own job title. So I call myself the, uh, a figure 53 field operative because <laughs> I feel like I'm out in the field doing stuff here and there. Um, but uh, no, what I do is I, 
Uh, I'm a part-time employee. I um, primarily work on support. I'm um, one of three people who does the primary work of responding to support emails. And we get quite a lot of those, as I'm sure you can imagine. Oh, yeah. And then lately, in the last year, I've taken on this additional role. I'm the lead teacher for the Q class. And um, I sort of developed the Q class and Andy and I team teach it. I am unusually extroverted for a stagehand. And so I have no no problem standing up in front of a large group of people and talking. That's not the kind of thing that a lot of technical theater folks do. And so Andy, as he says, he says, oh, you know, I, I like being the other guy. I like sitting there and providing the color commentary. And then when it's time to talk about MIDI, when it's time to talk about system redundancy, when it's time to talk about a couple of subjects on which he is one of the foremost authorities, in my opinion, um, that there is, then he takes over and I sort of become his sidekick. And it beats this, this sort of team effort. We went to Stockholm last year and taught a class at, I, I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation of this, it's Riksteatern, which is the National Touring Theater of Sweden. And we taught a class at USITT this year. We taught one down in D.C. last December. And uh, we're going to Las Vegas to teach one for Cirque in September. So we're oh. expanding that. And I'm hoping that as that expands that I will continue to be at the at the center of the teaching program because it's something I really love to do. Did you, uh, did you teach with translators in Sweden? Uh, no. Most of the people there spoke better English than I. Uh, some of them spoke English only as good as I do. Um, but the, really, the only people in Sweden I met who, who didn't have impeccable English were, were small children. It's really quite astounding. It turns out that in a lot of Europe, and this was a great surprise to me, um, English is the common language between folks from non-English-speaking countries. So, like, we met a bunch of German folks who were visiting who were speaking to the Swedes in English because the Swedes didn't speak German and the Germans didn't speak Swedish, but they both spoke English. Right. So it's sort of a, a, a Rosetta Stone language. <laughs> yeah. I find I travel a lot, and I find any country that doesn't really speak English well, I find if I just yell in English, it seems to work pretty well. Just scream at them, <laughs> and they that's kind of that's worked out really well for me in my travels. Aren't we supposed to be giving <laughs> helpful advice on this thing? <laughs> hey. <laughs> I felt really bad at first. You know, I felt like... I hate to be that stereotypical American that goes somewhere and can't speak the language and doesn't really know what to, you know, how to behave. And when I realized that most of the people uh, who were speaking English in Sweden were non-native English speakers mm-hmm. and not Swedes, I felt a lot better. I felt like, yeah. oh, well, you know, the, the Germans here are speaking English to the Swedes, so then it's I don't feel quite so conspicuous. Yeah. Uh, as a as like you know oh that guy the only english speaker yeah. in the room and think of the bravery it takes to to speak in language you're not really 100 percent on top of and yeah, to put absolutely. yourself out especially with technology i can't imagine i speak french a little bit i can't imagine you know asking questions about a technical technical software in french i used to do my act in french and consistently screwed up what i was saying to the point of getting laughs and not even knowing why <laughs> they, were la- they were laughing at me more than with me. Well, I think that is, you know, sort of a contractual obligation for the French to laugh at Americans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's okay. That's that's fine. Right. 
there are there are you know rules from way back. How did you stumble into working with Figure Fifty Three? Uh, well, you know, you what you something you said earlier was that you you started this podcast just to be cheerleaders. I was a huge, huge. I'm not to be cheerleaders. I I apologize. We are actually you wearing you cheerleader this, outfits this right now. Podcast. So. Right, as as QLab cheerleaders, and I was a major QLab cheerleader. I was very vocal on the mailing list. Can you tell that I, I have no trouble talking at great length? I would never deign to compare myself to someone like Mick or Rich Walsh, who provide the most unbelievably valuable feedback to folks on the mailing list. But I was hopefully at least as frequent a poster as they when... Figure 53 was gearing up to release, well, was gearing up to produce QLab 3, we had slowly been getting more and more email. And Lucky Dave at that time was the only person dedicated to email support. We were finding that Chris and Sean would sometimes go whole days without writing any code on account of answering emails. And uh, they approached me and said, listen, you've been so helpful and friendly on the email list with customers, um, would you like to keep doing that, but we'll pay you for it? And I, I said, yes, that wow. would be great. Yeah, Sam, you, you helped me uh, a while ago on the list. You were extremely helpful. I posted this thing about, uh, I was using this uh, ancient analog TV set as a uh, video surface, and I said, how do I get from a Mac to this thing? And you said, oh, you buy this, and you you buy an RF modulator, and you buy this, th- and and I was like, okay, and it worked perfectly on the first try, and I was like, fantastic. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it worked perfectly on the first try. That's that's a great endorsement. Well, like me being a one-man band, I'm sh- you've, the fact that you said that means you must have helped. I mean, I know you've helped me for a fact hundreds of times because I am a obsessive poster, I guess. When I have an issue, I want to figure it out and I want to know now. So your yeah. your support, we have often, when we first started the podcast, we were going to test you guys by posting a support question at the beginning of the podcast and seeing, you know, in real time how long it would take to have it be responded to. But that was kiboshed <laughs> by fellow of my, a few of my other podcast co-hosts. But I think you guys would have hit a home run on that because I've never been disappointed, especially when I'm backstage and my computer is gone and I'm freaking out and I send you guys an email and boom, it is, I'm back up right before I have to walk on stage. So it's an impressive support system. I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that, that you feel that way. We feel, uh, we know that our average response time has lengthened uh, over the years and we don't feel great about it, but we also we know that it's inevitable because there are more people using QLab now than there were before. And more people means more questions and more questions means it's going to take longer to answer them all. So our time has slipped a little. We have a a little metric in our thing and it says that 95% of our questions are responded to within an hour. And Mm -hmm. I feel good about that. So we work hard to keep it as fast as possible. So you're having dinner with your girlfriend and bloop, bloop, (laughs) iPhone pops up and Mark Neiser wants to know why QLab, he can't start restart QLab and every time he starts it, it crashes. So you just put down the wine glass and excuse yourself or, I mean, really? Well, to start with, my girlfriend is a very capable lighting designer as well as a writer and stage manager. So if I had to do such a thing, she would be 
well-equipped to understand, but uh, with the utmost respect to you, I would not put down the wine glass, <laughs> and I don't, uh, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't keep that hooked in, with the exception of times when I know for sure that I've been going back and forth with someone right. who's in the middle of something dire, yeah. then I keep an extra eye out. Right. But, right. Um, you know, I, I, I allow myself to log out <laughs> yeah. mentally. Yeah. Well, I think and, when uh, some of us reach a certain level where we can surf on our own now, you know, I, I'm at the point when I do have trouble and something is going down. I, I don't need to ask you guys. I know what my, what my options are and what, what my choices are. And I'm the guy that helps other people now. So I, I just don't respond to the forums much because I have a lot going on. And plus I know Mick's going to do it a thousand times better and faster than me. He, uh, he, he <laughs> wows me. I yeah. am just... I am consistently overwhelmed by how insightful and clever and uh, brilliant and helpful he is to yeah. one and all. Well, a quick comment about GoBox here. Uh, made in Brooklyn. I just, I love that. It's so, I want to oh, buy one just for that, just to have that sitting on my desk. Uh, and I can use it to trigger my streetlight laser turner offer program in QLab. <laughs> and GoBox is available at teamsound.nyc. Uh, that's the web address. That is correct. Teamsound.nyc. It looks cool. I can't wait to play with it. Uh, in your prepare, execute, troubleshoot file that you, you wrote, any insights? Yeah, I would say that a, a huge majority of the people who write in with um, what seem like just sort of, uh, I, I've got a really basic show and I've got a per- perfectly good Mac and everything's playing back poorly i've got choppy performance what's my problem uh, a huge huge percentage of the time they haven't gone through these steps or anything similar or they've got google chrome installs a really horrendous updater that's very aggressive about connecting to the internet huh. google's update engine is technically impressive but it is completely not friendly when it comes to qlab and i would say show control in general it's wow. really takes over the machine would you mind talking briefly about We Love Live Theater Contest? The idea is that there's folks in high schools and colleges around the country that are doing awesome stuff and that are financially limited. And we would like to be able to help those folks. From a business perspective, the point of the contest is we're trying to get more folks to know about Tixado, which is our box office service. It's QLab for box office, so it's easy on the eyes and it's easy on the wallet and it's easy on the brain, and it's just sort of a low-friction, peaceful, friendly way to build an online box office. And we're trying to get the word out as much as possible, so this contest is partly to promote that, but also it's because part of what we do is promote, you know, since, since we promote the making of theater by, the virtue, by virtue of what we sell, we also want to promote theater by being a good citizen for the users of our equipment and of our software. So we want to support that. We're excited about that. We love when people do awesome stuff with the stuff that we make. That's what makes it worthwhile. That's what makes the stuff we make valuable. If people didn't do wonderful things with QLab, then QLab would have no value. Mm. The winners get a cash prize, and um, they get free Tixado fees for that event, and they get a... QLab 3 Pro Bundle license and a Go Button license. Go Button is our iOS playback app. Yeah, so the, the contest uh, ends on 11.59 p.m. on June 1st. Get your pitches 
in to us by then. Okay, and we will include a link for that on the website. I was pretty excited <laughs> when I saw that. I was like, oh, I could win something. And then I realized I already have all this software. And, so. and you're not in high school or college? That, well, you know what? I, I look like I'm in high school. Uh, if you look past the cheap dye job and the earrings to try to stay hip. What, how, when, where, why? FAQ the Q. You've got questions. We've got long and detailed technical answers. Today we're going to cover Blackmagic Products, one of the world's leading innovators and manufacturers of creative video technology. I think I have more questions than answers here. So we'll see if most of the theater I do when I'm doing projections, I do a lot of very, very low budget theater. And everything is like VGA from the, the computer to the projector or occasionally HDMI. And if I wanted to go to SDI, I'm looking around the Blackmagic site and I see several different ways of doing that. And basically, I'm just sort of wondering uh, what the pros and cons are. So I see essentially there are things that seem to function sort of like audio interfaces that take Thunderbolt or USB and are really an external video card. And then right. there are just converters so that I could come out using HDMI or something and just convert to SDI. And I assume those show up differently in QLab as far yes. as uh, surfaces. So any pros yes. or cons about you know which direction to go in? Well, when it comes to output, the key thing to understand is that Blackmagic devices are not video cards insofar as there's no GPU. The work of processing information stored on disk to images on a screen has to happen on the CPU and GPU of the Mac, and then it exits the Mac in a rendered form and goes through the Blackmagic device to the screen. So that's the first essential thing to understand. Why that matters will become clear in a moment. So the two categories, really, are, as you say, seem like audio interfaces, and those are Blackmagic's Ultra Studio, Intensity, and DeckLink devices. And what these devices do is they take uh, rendered video data over a Thunderbolt or USB connection and produce a video signal. Then the other devices that you're talking about are what Blackmagic calls their broadcast converters, which take a video signal and convert it into a different kind of video signal. And if your main goal is simply to have an SDI connection, the broadcast converters can be a simpler way to go because your Mac is already doing the work of producing video. You've got video. There's no need to do anything other than get it onto the right kind of cable. The broadcast converters are built for that purpose, and the computer doesn't have to know about them. You don't have to install drivers. There's nothing different that QLab has to do. There's no extra software involved. From a simplicity perspective, I'm very much in favor of the broadcast converters. Now, the... Intensity, DeckLink, and Ultra Studio products, which for the purposes of argument, yeah, let's call them video interfaces, even though I don't think that's technically a correct term. The Mac actually has to do a little bit more work. The GPU has direct access to the video output of your Mac. And if you're not using the video output of your Mac, instead you're using the Thunderbolt output, the GPU has to shuffle whatever work it's done back to the CPU and to system RAM and say, all right, all yours, you can do whatever you want now. And then the CPU says, all right, Thunderbolt port, here's your data. That extra step takes extra work. Um, there's, there's more latency involved 
in playback via a video interface. Um, there's a processing latency inherent to the Blackmagic device, whereas the broadcast converters, because they're doing something fundamentally simpler, broadcast converters have dramatically less latency. So it, it seems to me like there would be a lot of benefits to uh, using something that does not show up to the system as a display. And there you go. That is the only, and that's the big argument in favor of an interface rather than a converter is it doesn't show up to the system as a display, so you don't get any OS-level wackiness trying to do display-type stuff. Right, so you don't need to worry about desktop backgrounds. You don't need to... You can't, like, drag the mouse onto it, right? Exactly. That, okay. And that, that is the major advantage. And uh, for folks in certain more high-pressure environments, there also is a PR perspective that matters. The Ultra Studio 4K Extreme is a very impressive-looking piece of hardware... <laughs> It's a very expensive piece of hardware. It belongs in a rack with a bunch of other high-end video gear. And there's a lot of situations where you kind of don't get taken seriously if you're not using pro-grade tools. And I used to, like, scoff at that, but the, it's true. And I've been there, and, you know, I, I did a corporate event, and I was getting paid $500 a day to push one button on a very, very, very expensive video switcher. And I had to wear a tie, and I had to look like a pro and act like a pro. Now, everything that I was doing there could have been done by a high school kid with, like, a basic understanding and, like, $300 at Radio Shack. <laughs> and it w- the image quality would have been utterly identical with because of the specifics of that event. But nevertheless, that's not what was going on at that event. It was a major corporate thing. It had to be pro-grade tools, and it had to be, a you know a professional operating it, even though their needs were really just flipping back and forth between one guy's PowerPoint output and another guy's PowerPoint output. I have one more question about all this, Um, sort of using the audio interface analogy. Uh, Is there a quote-unquote video interface that gives you multiple outputs that will show up in QLab as discrete screens? The way that you have like an eight channel audio interface. The Ultra Studio 4K and the Ultra Studio 4K Extreme have two outputs each. I mean, they have a zillion outputs, but they have two sort of pathways and you can um, treat them as separate destinations. They they behave as different as separate screens in QLab parlance. Um, Right. So black magic devices are single output. So I could hook up one of those and I'd see in my, uh, surface editor i'd see two separate screens show up yeah i don't remember exactly how it comes through it's like ultra studio 4k a ultra studio 4k okay. b or something like that. okay and um, the limit is and two you have to, that's that's interesting yeah hmm. well think about it what well, they're they're designed for broadcast right you know how many outputs broadcast needs they need exactly one the one yeah. to the tv station hmm. and so multiple outputs is is not a priority it's it, not only is it not a priority it's it's like there's no well it's also i mean it's, it's already outputs. not a priority in the audio interface world because they're all made for recording studios so i mean exactly ultimately the destination is at maximum it's you know 9.1 surround so i wonder uh, i wonder if you know. anybody makes uh an interface for video with a whole ton of outputs for this kind of use it is my belief that no one makes it. And if they do, I've certainly never seen it. Aja doesn't. Kramer doesn't. Uh, Blackmagic doesn't. A- Aja and Blackmagic are the two 
companies that we get asked about the most. Um, and they're sort of the, the two companies doing sort of the, the most and fanciest high-end video output stuff mm-hmm. uh, in our world. Do I really see the difference in HD video? I've used, you know, yes. HDMI into projectors. I've also used, and I use VGA 99% of the time. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really seeing, t- when I'm projecting to a psych behind me on stage. Recently, I was doing a show, and it, it, it entirely depends what you're doing. I see a difference between our resolutions. I see a huge difference if I'm doing it, difference if I'm doing anything with type. You know, I was doing a thing where I had animated lines, and they were one pixel wide. And if I did a digital connection via HDMI, they stayed exactly one pixel wide. And if it was an analog connection, the projector kind of rounds it off and sort of does whatever it wants to, Hmm. you know, and you just, for some things that usually VGA is fine, but for some things that precision of like knowing that exactly one pixel is going to equal one pixel is, Mm -hmm. is, can be important. Hmm. There's also an important distinction to draw between um, connection technology and resolution. So you said, you asked if there's a difference between HD, does HD matter? And then you asked about HDMI versus VGA. Well, HD is a term that means a video of a resolution of either uh, 1280 by 720 or 1920 by 1080 uh, pixels. And it's a rectangle of a specific number of pixels. Mm -hmm. HDMI, uh, even though it shares the letters HD, the signal that travels along an HDMI connection can be an SD signal. It could be only uh, seven, I don't remember. Uh, it, it can be only an NTSC rectangle. It could be a smaller number of pixels. And a VGA connection can carry, uh, I don't remember the upper limit, but it can carry It can a carry full, that is, full HD over yeah, VGA. I think it can carry 1920 by 1080, yeah? Yeah. Right. So the, the, there's, first of all, is the physical cable, then there's the kind of the, the electrical action that's going on, and then there's the resolution. It's sort of like multiple layers of things you have to think about. HDMI itself is a, is a pretty lame connector and a pretty irritating standard, but it's ubiquitous, and uh, it's easy to work with if you can get around its limitations, or it's not limitations, if you can get around its quirks. Mm-hmm. VGA is even more ubiquitous. It's even easier to get around. I was just going to say, if you don't need to go more than 50 feet in any direction. My HDMI connections don't go more than 6 feet because there's a HD base T adapter and 200 feet of Cat6 cable in between my six foot HDMI cables. I don't, I don't want to deal with the cable any longer than six feet if it's not meant for really long runs. Which is what Ethernet's covering you for. Well, again, it's Cat6 cable. It's not Ethernet, right? Because Ethernet is a language. Right. I'm sorry. Cat6. It's a protocol. That's right. No, that's a, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, and I, I'm not trying to be pedantic or anything. No, but no, I, that's it's, helpful. It's 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 just some, it's something so super important to remember. The more, you know, the more technology that ends up in the theater, the more it matters. Right. What we say to spe- like you know, I, a lot of times, uh, you say you see like lighting folks will get um, uh, a lot of lighting equipment has DMX on a three pin connector, right. and they say, oh, I need I need XLR for that right. lighting instrument, I need but I need DMX, DMX for this other lighting instrument. Right. It's all XLR. And the answer is. It's all, it's all DMX and it's all XLR. Right. It's three pin DM, three pin XLR over here and it's five pin XLR over there mm-hmm. in the lighting world. It's okay for them to use those terms because those terms are being used in a specific setting right. where it, there's no confusion available. But for us, 
when you run two Ethernet connections to the tech table uh, in your paperwork, you say, well, why would I want two Ethernet connections? I can just put a hub and <laughs> right. I have two Ethernet connections right. or five or 100. Well, what you really mean is you run two Cat5 connections. Right. One is for Ethernet and the other is for screen sharing or for, um, I mean, for KVM or, or uh, for a video uh, connection over HD base T or whatever. Hmm. It's just, you know, because we have multiple uses for the cables, it becomes more and more important to remember the different things that you can use the cable for and therefore the different words. I try to, like, remind myself as often as possible so that I get it right, so that I don't embarrass myself when I write it down wrong in my paperwork and make a mess. So, I, I again, I'm not trying to be pedantic. I'm just trying to be precise. I'm constantly learning, and I've never taken any classes in this stuff, but I would like to take the QLab class. Can I come up to Baltimore? Is that where it's, is you hold it at the office? The way we do it is people ask us uh, to for the class, and um, we go to them, and the way it works is like this. You pay for our travel costs, and you pay for our lodging, and you bring the venue with electricity and students, and we'll bring the teachers, the QLab machine, and a projector. Oh, I guess you need to provide speakers. Uh, I don't mean speakers as in people who speak. I mean right. loudspeakers. And uh, we bring QLab, and we don't charge for the for the class. Oh, that's cool. So if if you want to host a class and you know gather some folks together to cover your costs, then um, you write to Lola and say I want to bring a Q class hmm. to such and such a place, wow. and then she sets it up because she's a scheduling genius. Wow. Very cool. Well, I want to get a Blackmagic device here, and I think you should probably market the Go Box with the word extreme in it. I think I'm going to rebrand my show, Mark Neiser, extreme meme. What, me, what he needs yeah, is a rack yeah. mount version that's like three units high and has like a bunch of fans in it. <laughs> right. So that way, right. yeah, you it charges like $3,000. You just wanted to work where the word the rack in there. Then people will take you seriously. All right, gents, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I got to No, I mean, I think this has been a, a great interview. Yeah. Thank you. But, Thank you so much, Sam. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me Thank on. you. Cool. Thanks for joining us, everybody. I will leave us with a quote as usual. All of the biggest technological inventions created by man, the airplane, the automobile, the computer, says little about his intelligence, but speaks volumes about his laziness. Mark Kennedy. The Q is produced by Active Media Group in association with The Q Show cast. Music for The Q was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11.